0: So, as I said, I am a pastor, and uh, as a pastor, I've decided, I have two two daughters, I've decided that I want to raise my daughters in the way such that they will live like a prostitute. And I have two sons, and I also want them to live in the way of a prostitute. And I have my wife, Sandy. I, I want to put my best effort, it is my obligation as her husband, to help her to live Like a prostitute. I would, I would be ashamed if someday I stand before God and can't say that I've helped her along that journey. And even myself, I want to have the faith of a prostitute. So now with that opening, if you could all please turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verses 25 to 26. James is toward the back of the Bible says this, In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Uh, Our church just recently did a series through the book of James entitled A Faith That Works. And when our lead pastor sent out the, the preaching calendar with the potential passages and dates, for some of us, the others of us who help with the preaching. Uh, I first saw that and I thought, no, I don't want to touch that passage. Like, f- first of all, two verses, how am I gonna get a whole sermon out of that? And and secondly, like, w- what am I gonna do with this? But then the more I thought about it, I thought, no, I, I do want to preach on this. There is a lot there. Uh, so I did develop that message and I wanted to share that message with you today because I, I think there really is a lot there for us to learn. Um, But to better understand this passage in James, we need to flip back toward the beginning of the Bible to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 2, and we'll get a little bit of our background. Joshua chapter 2, and I'm going to actually read the whole chapter. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me. But I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flask she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. She let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you, hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. The men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when you when we enter the land you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So the Israelites have been wandering in the desert for 40 years, waiting to go into the promised land. And now they're at the door, and this woman Rahab has helped them. Now, before we get too far into this, I just want to briefly touch on, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, The question that's often asked, was it okay for Rahab to lie? This has been debated for centuries. I remember when I was in seminary, we spent an entire class period discussing, was it okay for her to lie to save someone else's life? I'm not gonna stand here and try to give a definitive answer when it's been debated for centuries. But I will say that in Hebrews chapter 11 and in James chapter two, God commends Rahab for her faith in her actions. So there's something that Rahab did that was commendable by practicing out her faith. And that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. How a faith that works redefines me, represents me, and repurposes me. And as I was looking at the outline, this was actually my fault. That first one should be redefines, if you're using the bulletin, uh, instead of refines. Uh, I looked back at my email, I had it wrong. Lovely autocorrect. Nobody's ever had a problem with autocorrect, right, on your phone? So, a faith that works redefines me. What is Rahab's title? Here, as we're reading in James, as we're reading in 2019, 3,500 years later, what is still her title? Rahab the prostitute, right? That's, That's still what we're calling her. Yet, that is not what defines her. That is not what we remember her for. That is not why she's immortalized in the Bible to be read till the end of time. What defined her was her active faith in God. And I want you to think about what she believed in. I want to read verses 10 and 11 again from Joshua 2. She says, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So she says, we've heard about when God dried up the Red Sea for you as you were coming out of Egypt. Think about this a second. The Israelites had been wandering around for 40 years. That's something that happened 40 years ago. Rahab's job as a prostitute, if she's much older than 40, she's probably not the one that the guys are passing her card around at the club, Right? And not only that, but the Bible goes on to say that Rahab had children. So when the events at the Red Sea happened, at the the very least, she was a little girl. And she may not even have been born yet, because that was 40 years earlier. And yet she takes that fantastical event that she did not see for herself, and she connects it and believes that God is God in heaven above and in earth below. She has that kind of faith to believe in something that she did not see. That doesn't sound like uh, somebody defined as a prostitute to me. She's been redefined. That that prostitute puts a lot of us to shame. And, And having that faith in what she cannot see. She believed that God is God in heaven above and on earth below. That God is real. That God is supreme. That God matters in her life. And in that faith, she found redefinition. She was no longer Rahab the prostitute. She was Rahab who helped God's people. And because of that faith in action, Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And back in James chapter 2, James says that she was considered righteous for what she did, or some translations have she was justified by her works. Now, James isn't saying that Uh, He's not running contrary to books like Galatians where it says that we're saved by faith He's he's not denying the role of faith when he says she was saved by her works But at the same time I I don't think I or I think it weakens it a bit I've often heard the the argument that our our works show our faith and And that's how we can put like say the book of James and the book of Galatians together But I think it's more than that. I think when when God looks at these people and sees their works, their works are their faith. They're actually living out what they believe. So in in James chapter 2, right before it, he talks about Abraham, who was willing to sacrifice his son if God asked him to do that. When God looked at Abraham, he didn't see faith and works. He saw faith. When God sees a Christian... Uh, living their Christianity actively, he doesn't see faith in works, he sees faith. When God looks at a a dud Christian, he doesn't see faith in lack of works, he sees lack of faith. So where are you at? It's not, I believe in Jesus, yet I don't live this. It's, I believe in Jesus, so I absolutely live this, and I believe every word of this. When God looked at Rahab, he doesn't see faith in works. He sees faith. She was justified by her faith. That works. Justified, just as if I had never sinned. Some of you have probably heard that definition before. God no longer looked at her as the rebel, as the sinner, as the prostitute. He looked at her as if she had never sinned. Can we take that in a moment? Like, God can do that. She's no longer Rahab the prostitute. God can save people like that. She's Rahab saved by the grace of God. She's been redefined. I want you to think of um, medieval knights for a second, or kings, how they often had their label that that went with their exploits or their characters. You have Richard the Lionhearted, or... Donovan the Brave or whatever whatever name you wanna put with that. Well, connecting that to Rahab, James says, Rahab the prostitute. Some title, right? But her faith at work redefined her. What is your title? What is, what is your label? My story, my label is a little different than a lot of people I encounter in my circles and I'm sure different than a lot of yours uh, there may be some in here who, once upon a time, were alcoholics or engaged in, in drugs. Uh, there may be some of you, I don't i don't know, it may some of you have been in prison. Maybe uh, some of you in, in a past life uh, slept around all the time. Well, for me, God in his grace allowed my life to dodge some of those life experiences. For me, we have to rewind back to fifth grade. In fifth grade... Uh, a friend and I were doing a special project for a teacher and it was taking a little longer than expected so she gave us the special privilege of staying in the classroom all by ourselves while everybody else went out to recess and we could work on this project. Well we worked on the project um, but at the same time we're fifth graders and we used that opportunity without any oversight to swear as much as we possibly could. Like That's all we did the whole time tried to outdo each other with swearing. I even came up with a name that I would call people that involved every swear word that I knew. And and you know you might say sarcastically like, oh Andy, that's so terrible. You 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 swore, swearing. Who cares about that? But you know let me tell you, I, I've never been addicted to drugs. I've never been addicted to pornography. Um, I may never have been an alcoholic. But from fifth grade until ninth grade, when Jesus finally got a hold of my life, I felt the weight of my sin upon my shoulders. I felt that unworthiness. I felt that inadequacy. I felt that God would never let me into heaven. And before I move on, I want to make that clear to everyone in this room. Your label might not be alcoholic or pervert or whatever else, but we all have labels. We all have titles that define our character. And at the very least, if you have not found forgiveness in Jesus Christ, your label is Adam the sinner or Eve the sinner. We all have sins, and our sins keep us from heaven. And that's where I'm, I'm going to go with this. So, Javon, can you bring that up for me? Please? You can actually bring both. So, I told you about my background. So, here I am. I have to bump this too much. Here I am, Andy the Swear. For those of you who can't see in the back, there's a deep auditorium, but it's a lion with ampersands and hashtags and all that stuff he's swearing. So I'm Andy the Swearer. That's my title. But there came a day in the autumn of 1995 when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul talks in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God. Does anyone know faith? Because we're talking about faith that works today. What piece of the armor is faith? Does anybody know that offhand? Breastplate's righteousness. I heard somebody say it. Shield. Take up the shield of faith. So, when I believe and take up my shield, who do you see? Jesus, right? I'm no longer Andy the swearer. I'm Andy saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. God doesn't look at me and see Andy the swearer. He sees Jesus the savior when I take up that faith. When Rahab placed her faith in God from God's point of view, she was no longer Rahab the prostitute, she was Rahab the righteous. She went from Rahab the prostitute to Rahab the the heaven-bound. A faith that works redefines me. Take this off for a second. We don't get all that feedback. Another example, my... My son Gabriel, he struggles with distractibility and putting his energy into the right things at school. And he often gets self-defeated. And he thinks he's not worthy of the family, not worthy of God. And I remind him, Gabe, take up your faith in Jesus. He will give you the Holy Spirit to empower you. Jesus can change Gabe from Gabe the self-defeated to Gabe the empowered by Jesus. In my 20-plus years in ministry, I've come across husbands or wives who have been unfaithful to their spouses. And when they've come out on the other end, when they've repented and come out on the other end, they still have these questions of, what's everybody else saying about me? Are they calling me a, a seductress or an adulterer? What are they saying about me? Are they calling me Rahab the prostitute? I say embrace the label because it connects to the forgiveness and the faithfulness of God Yes, I was an adulterer and adulteress, but God cleansed me and I now live in an act of faith. 3,500 years later, we're still reading Rahab references, Rahab the prostitute. But when we think of Rahab, we don't think of that. We don't think of the label. We think of the character and we think of her faith in God and God's work in her life. We admire her for turning to God, for doing the right thing in the moment, even though all of the city around her wasn't doing that. A faith that works redefines me. I want you to think of abortion. I think this is one of these areas where Christians have sorely missed the concept of redefinition through faith. Abortion is evil. It is murder. The Bible's clear on that. As a pastor who believes in the word of God, I have to say that up front. And whatever guy or parent or friend is encouraging a girl to get an abortion is an accessory to murder. As a preacher of God's word, I have to say those things. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God forgives. I want to read to you from Psalm 103. Uh, I'm reading verses 8 through 12. And actually, Psalm 103 has some of the same lines that Psalm 145 has that we read earlier. Psalm 103, 8 through 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And in Micah chapter 7, it says this, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. So Christians, Jessica the aborter might now years years later be Jessica the forgiven by faith. And Brandon the accessory to murder might now years later be Brandon the humbled by faith the repentant. So we need to be so careful that we're not screaming baby killers in our safe Christian spaces without recognizing that there very likely maybe somebody in this room right now who has been forgiven by that faith action, And without coupling that with a faith that works redefines us. And Jessica, the aborter, God loves you and we love you. Rahab, the prostitute, is no longer defined by her prostitution, but by her faith in God. Maybe you're Austin, the pornographer. This is a poison that plagues our land, plagues our churches. This, too, is a great evil. We wouldn't even have Rahab, the prostitute, if we didn't have Austin, the pornographer, or Shane, the pervert. Because actually in James chapter 2, the word for prostitute, when it says Rahab the prostitute, it's Rahab the pornay. So we wouldn't have a demand for pornays if we didn't have pornographers. So this is an evil thing, but maybe that's you. Maybe you're Austin the pornographer. A faith that works redefines you. You no longer need to be defined by that. But, and this is where I shift to my next point, a faith that works represents me as well I not only have a new outward definition of my character but I actually have a new character I live differently I have a faith that works James 2 says Rahab the prostitute was considered righteous for what she did and he also says as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without deeds is dead so if I'm Rahab the prostitute it's more like I was Rahab the prostitute Rahab's faith was seen in protecting the spies, not engaging in sin with them. My new actions since coming to faith in Jesus Christ are different than those that I once engaged in. If I'm Austin the pornographer, that's what I was saved from, and I've been redefined, but as a part of that saving faith and as a part of that redefinition, I don't look at that anymore. A faith that works represents me. What, what if Rahab had said to the spies... I believe that you've been sent by God. I've heard these stories. I believe that you're sent by God. And I believe that he is God in heaven and and on earth below. That's her faith. That's belief. And then all of a sudden she's like, they're over here, soldiers. Come get them. They're right here. They're right here. Come get them. I mean, it sounds just as stupid when, when we say, I have faith. I believe in Jesus Christ who died for my sins. But then but then I'm looking wide-eyed at my phone at things I shouldn't be looking at. It's just as stupid if I say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, I have faith, but then I'm verbally abusing other people. It sounds just as stupid if I say that I, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, but I'm not engaging an active church community in that family. It sounds just as silly when I when I say, I believe in Jesus Christ, I have faith, but then I'm, uh, my works are disobeying my parents, running my mouth about somebody else's business, mistreating my spouse, seeking out my own gain, or engaging in questionable work decisions. All in all, it sounds just as silly to say, I believe that Jesus Christ came to die for my sins, but I'm going to keep living in those sins. I'm going to live that unrepentant life. James bluntly says, as he's already said twice in chapter 2, that faith without works is dead or useless. James says, as the body without the spirit or without breath, it's the same word, is dead, so faith without works is dead. Way, way, way back at the beginning of things, when God created man, he formed him out of the dust, and the thing that enlivened man, that made him who he was, was God breathed into him he gave him his own breath he made him alive breath is what defines a living human being well in the same way faith without works is dead there's no breath if there's no works accompanying your faith you're you're a corpse your faith is dead it's not the real thing let me say that again if there are not works and I'm not just saying the good works that we pick and choose All right, I'm going to do this this and this but I'm not going to give this one up If there's not works accompanying our faith, it's dead. Titus says, or Paul says in Titus chapter 1, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. And Jesus himself says this in Matthew 21. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And the other son answered, Oh, I absolutely will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? And the answer is the first. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. That's truth. I can say what I want about believing in God and wanting to follow his lead, but if I don't actually follow his lead, I don't trust God. I don't have faith. And the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of me because although they once lived a life openly in rebellion to God, they repented and they turned the other way. They placed their faith in God and they turned the other way. And they said, God, I will work in your vineyard. I'll do it. I, I, I believe in you. I believe you. You forgave me, and I'm going to work in your vineyard. So faith that works represents me. It just doesn't re- redefine me from God's perspective, but it identifies me as a God follower. A faith that works finds me working in the vineyard. A faith that works finds me telling my coworkers about Jesus Christ. A faith that works finds me willingly obeying my parents. A faith that works finds me fixing my eyes and my mind on heavenly things, not the lusts of these earthly things a faith that works finds me showing patience in all situations with all people a faith that works finds me controlling my tongue like james talks about in chapter 3 a faith that works drop kicks the love of this world and the, and its desires because that faith knows those things are passing away and this person does the will of god and 1 john 2:17 says that person lives forever A faith that works represents me. A faith that works redefines me as a believer in Jesus, but it also represents me as a follower of Jesus. So back back to my shield. I want you to think of this not as a uh, allegorical shield this time, but as a real shield. So let's pretend I have a real shield here. If I'm suiting up in armor and uh, I take up a real shield, heavy metal shield, am I doing it to get ready to sit down with my family for dinner? Sandy, can you pass me the mashed potatoes, please, right? Or am I taking up a shield so I can drive across town to the grocery store? Oh, I'm sorry I didn't see you there. Or am I taking up my shield so to crawl into bed at night? No. No. I'm taking up a shield because I know either a battle's coming to me or I'm going into battle, right? Right? If I'm standing up here with a real shield and and the pianist is holding the the song music, you guys can tell which one's ready for battle, right? So now turning to the symbolic, it's the same thing with the shield of faith. I take up that faith with the intention of action. Either the battle's coming to me or I'm going into battle, but I'm going to be ready for it. A faith that works represents me as a follower of Jesus, as a soldier of Jesus, as a man of action. I'm not just a corpse. My brother Isaac is a police officer. He doesn't put on the Kevlar vest when he's going home after his shift. He puts on the Kevlar vest when he's starting a shift because he's going to do his job. The same is true of our shield of faith. We take it up to do our job. And the spiritual warfare that's, that's going on all around us, do you know how the, the enemy identifies who's actually on his side? It's not by the, the flag they're waving. Uh, there's a lot of people that are standing by the Christian flag saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe. He knows by looking across the battlefield and seeing who's lying on the ground who's not actively engaged, the, those that don't have that shield in their hand. I think of, uh, if you've ever seen uh, any of the Matthew Brady photographs from the Civil War, of the bloated corpses lying after a battle with the hollow eyes. We think of that in our lives as... as uh, as the pastor or as a family member or or the neighbor down the street or, or the neighborhood evangelist is holding that shield of faith out inches from our hands as we're lying there taking up space in the battlefield. Pick it up, pick it up, take up this faith. And that leads to my last point. A faith that works redefines me. A faith that works represents me, but then there's a a purpose to to that faith. I have a a life challenge to live out. A faith that works repurposes me. I have more than my own redefinition to live for. I have more than just, all right, I've got my fire insurance. I'm, I'm safe from hell. I'm going to heaven. A faith that works repurposes me to do something way beyond myself. It... It repurposes me to be part of God's victorious army, His victorious ranks, to be used as a a holy instrument of God. You know, we don't think of as I started off this sermon. We don't think of prostitutes as heroes of the faith. You know, I as I started with my illustration, you don't normally tell your daughters, "Hey, look at her, mimic her." But Hebrews eleven treats Rahab as a, as a hero of the faith. There was something somehow God used her for a new purpose. So first of all, God used used her to uh, give God's people, a nation, encouragement and victory. She had an awesome purpose. So again, for, year, for 40 years, the Israelites have been wandering around in the desert. The spies come to her. She gives them the information like, yeah, we're all totally scared of you guys. She protects them, sends them on their way. They go back and Tell Joshua, let's go, it's ours. And they then go in to win the battle. Rahab was instrumental in that. And it was kind of behind the scenes. Maybe that's you. Maybe, Maybe you're the person who cleans the church when nobody's around. Maybe you're the one coming to mow the grass. Maybe you're the guys back at the soundboard. Maybe you're a children's worker. Well, there's great purpose in all of that. Because doing those behind-the-scenes things, those behind-the-scenes faith and action, you could transform a whole city. Or those of you that work with the children, you could transform a whole generation of children to grow up and who will then go out and transform the world. We can restore a city by our faith and action. A faith that works repurposes me. Secondly, another purpose that Rahab fulfilled was she saved her family. Faith that works repurposed her. She had an awesome purpose. It says, the text in Joshua says that she pleaded with the spies, please let me save my family. Let me save my, my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and everyone that belongs to them. And, and they said, okay, get them into your house and they'll be safe. So she did that. She, she, she ended up collecting her family members, protecting them in her house, saving them from imminent danger. She was an evangelist to her, to her family. And you might say, well, of course she was, because she, she loved her family, and she saw doom at the city gates. Well, the day of the Lord is at the city gate. And the armies of heaven are just on the other side of the clouds, waiting for the word to come. So are we telling our family, I love you enough, I want to save you from this destruction? A faith that works repurposes us to that calling. And here's the preacher today. Part of my calling is to hold that out to anyone here today, too. The day of the Lord is is coming, and there is a day when Jesus will come and judge, and he will take those who have had that faith with him to heaven, and those who have not will end up going to hell. But this is what 2 Peter says. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So it could happen any day. The, the day of the Lord's at the gate. But at the same time, God's showing us patience in the meantime, not wanting anyone to perish. So I'm going to hold that out to you today do like Rahab, say, wow, I I haven't actually seen this all for myself. But I believe. I believe that God is God in heaven above and on earth below, and I believe that God sent his son Jesus to take away that sin that labeled me before. And for those of us who have already turned to Jesus in faith, it's a faith that works. We've been repurposed to take that message to the world, God brought redemption to the world. And that brings me to my third and final purpose that Rahab carried out. God repurposed Rahab to bring redemption to the world. If you could please turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 records the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to read just the start of verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So who was Boaz's mother? Rahab. And then flip over to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma was a converted prostitute whom God repurposed to create this line that would lead to the Savior of the world. God brought redemption to the world through a converted prostitute. And then, through that line, Jesus came. He lived a sinless life. He didn't do any of that stuff. He didn't even swear one time. Yet he was nailed to a cross and left to bleed and left to suffocate. And he bore the wrath of God that we all deserved. That, that fire that Second Peter talked about is coming. He bore that wrath to bring loving redemption to you and me. And three days later, he arose victorious and he said, I've won. Believe in me. And God's repurposed us to, to bring that message. And as, as he comes out of the grave and shouts that victory, we remember that way, 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 way back in the history of Jesus, in the genealogy of Jesus, was a converted prostitute. God can do that. God can look at someone who believes in him and say, I'm going to repurpose you. I'm going to redefine you. And I'm going to repurpose you. And I'm going to take you like clay and mold you into a thing of beauty and purpose. So, who's ready to be transformed today? Thanks for listening. This Preaching for a Change broadcast has been brought to you by the Grace Baptist Church of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at mygracebaptist.church. If you enjoyed this broadcast, then share it with a friend on your favourite social media network. And be sure to join us next time for more enlightening and encouraging biblical exposition here on Preaching for a Change.